0: welcome to the 129th Theory Dialogue podcast. It's funny, last week I totally missed something because the podcast came out on April 7, and it only dawned on me afterwards that April 7 is also the name of a novel I had published a few years ago. Sadly, it's now long out of print, and weirdly, I don't even have a copy of it myself. But because I remembered that, I forgot to check if there are any interesting facts about the number 129. But anyway, it's now April the 14th, and it's another week and another show. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been an interesting week. Beautiful weather here, so we went to the hills to walk on Sunday, and it snowed like crazy. The sunny weather does kind of make me laugh, because here in Scotland, for many, sun means summer, regardless of the season. So there were people out in t-shirts and driving cars with the top down. When I went to the store, it was 1 degree, or 34 Fahrenheit, and the guy at the traffic lights next to me had the car roof down and was wearing a T-shirt, and he was literally shivering. But pneumonia's worth it to look cool, right? Because of the nice weather, I also went a bit crazy and bought way too many plants. While we're still having frosts. Oh well. In England, some more sectors of society opened up again this week, but we still have a couple of weeks left to wait here in Scotland for that, and we definitely aren't out of the woods yet, in spite of what some people would like to believe. I also decided to finally upgrade my smartphone this week, and discovered that the newer model has a pretty bad battery for navigation. Now, we aren't travelling yet, but at some point we will be, and it seems a bit strange to get a new phone with a so-called better battery, but then that battery discharges really quickly if you're navigating with the phone. Apparently it's optimized for video and gaming and streaming. So when I'm in the middle of Frankfurt, lost because I can't turn on GPS because it kills the battery, at least I'll be able to watch a video. Anyway, I sent the phone back. Maybe I'll dig out my compass and maps. So who is on the podcast this week? Well, we have three conversations for you. We spoke with Teresa Black, founder and CEO of Bon Suite about gelato. Craig Walker, director of product portfolio management at RA Jones, about automatic magazine loaders, and Professor Monique Ratz at the University of Surrey in the UK about processed food. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. And that brings us, not very neatly at all, into the news you may have missed over the past seven days. The second week of the Easter break here really played havoc with the news, as we didn't put out any news on Monday, we switched it to Friday, which meant that the articles I'd usually have for this Monday were all used up, which created a bit of a challenge, but we got through it. So, to the news. Maxim Foods looked at emerging from lockdown in its April dairy update. Nestle launched dairy-free Milo in Asia. Hydrosol promoted its role in producing economical dairy products for the pandemic food supply. And the 2021 DFA Colab Accelerator was announced. Process Expo has changed its 2021 dates, although it's still in Chicago. Tate & Lyle has added to its learning programs, this time its Stabilizer University, and Danone Institute North America is looking for new applicants. Neogen, who we featured on the podcast recently, has made its monitoring program free to companies for a year. An interesting project sees researchers in Israel introduce probiotic yogurt-based treatment for inflammatory conditions, and profits are up despite a sales drop at Swiss dairy company Hochdorf. The FDA launched a plan for reducing exposure to toxic elements from foods for babies and infants, and in the U.S., dairy farmers have asked the NMPF and IDFA to collaborate to fix what they call unethical milk pricing. In the U.K., there is a new summer holiday campaign for the ice cream industry to recoup some of the losses experienced in 2020 due to the pandemic, and you can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. So it's time to get to this week's guests. To combat ongoing labour issues and meet surging demand for consumer packaged goods through the coronavirus pandemic, US-based R.A. Jones has designed and introduced an automatic magazine loader, or AML, for use with its cartoning machines. My autocorrect, when I was writing the article about this, constantly tried to change cartoning to cartooning machines. And I'm glad that I mentioned it, because apparently it happens to the company too. Before the interview, I should let you know that if you're listening to this via our website, in the article underneath the podcast, you can see a video of the AML in action. If you're listening on a podcast app, then you can watch it by just heading over to dairyreporter.com, and if it's not on the front page, just click on podcasts, and you can sort them by date and find the article and video from there. So to tell us all about cartons and not cartoons and the AML is R.A. Jones, Director of Product Portfolio Management, Craig Walker. All right, so I guess if we could start with a bit of background on the company.
1: So R.A. Jones was founded in 1905. We first started out as a soap packaging company. From there, we've developed into a global leader in the design and manufacturing of primary and secondary packaging machinery. So some of our portfolio machines include aerosol, cartoning, chub packing, cup filling, beverage multi-packing, and pouch. We are now part of Coesia. We've been part of Coesia for the last nine years. Coesia is one of the largest uh, network of packaging and processing technology companies in the world. So us tied to Coesia gives us that global footprint, that global support to go out and support our customers.
0: And as far as the dairy industry, is concerned i guess dairy and dairy alternatives what kind of products do you have that are relevant to those markets
1: i would say cup fillings probably our biggest in the dairy industry so there we're taking pre-formed cups um, where we uh, denest those we put products whether it's yogurt or other like cottage cheese or anything like that we uh, have different kinds of fillers depending on the types of products that we're trying to fill and then we seal that cup and it can overcap the cup. So that's one. Uh, our beverage multi-packing, we can do like PET bottles. We can do some glass. If anything happens to be in cans, we can do that. As far as anything else in dairy, so uh, we have a UK branch and they have a product called Dawson. Um, and some of those Dawson products, there's some bottling milk and glass, which we understand is coming back a little bit over there in the UK. And then some other types of uh, accessories that go with that. So the new
0: AML, what was that designed to address?
1: We have done other automatic magazine loaders or AMLs in the past. Most of those have been like full robotic systems. You've got a big cage that goes around the robot. So the AML, we really worked with a customer to develop, and the one we developed is more of a modular type. So. From a modularity standpoint, we can start with a base unit. We can expand from there all the way up to a fully automatic system. And its purpose, really, a couple of things. So I mentioned the modular design. So that gives you the flexibility to configure it based on our customers' footprint, floor space, and their budget. We have a base system that we can provide that's just like a short section of conveyor with the AML that loads the cartons onto the magazine. From there, uh, we can add additional conveyor to put more cases onto the system. We can add a kind of a pallet jack to help the operators put cases under the carton off of a pallet. And then we can expand it to the fully automated solution where we have an automatic depalletizer on the front end. And that's where you just bring a pallet full of cases to it um, and it automatically takes it off and puts it onto the conveyor. So from that perspective, that's where the modular part comes in Some of this takes a lot of floor space, but the base solution does not. So if they have plenty of room and want to automate or have enough budget, we can certainly do that. If they have floor place or budget restrictions, we can certainly start with the base and and scale it up to whatever they need. So we can start, again, all the way from basic where they hand load cases right onto a conveyor that leads up to the AML. Or they can get a fully depalletized system where the customer just brings in pallets of cases of cartons. It takes it from there. It takes the cases off and automatically gets them through the system. Kind of the reasons it was designed or what it was to address, it reduces the amount of labor required to run the line. So normal cartoning equipment that has pre-glued cartons, uh, we get cases of cartons that come to us. The operator lifts those cases, in some cases, rotates them over, or flips them over, and puts them on a magazine where they're stacked up, ready to be pulled out and opened and filled. The AML does that in its place. It has a mechanism in order to do that in an automated way versus a person doing it. So again, the solution really is to automate the unloading of cases and to put cartons onto a carton magazine for that cartoner to run correctly. The base system alone is a short conveyor. We're able to get those cartons oriented, get them angled right, match them up to the existing stack of cartons um, and go from there. We also have a feature that we're working through the patent on that if cartons happen to fall at the end of the stack of cartons already on the magazine, we can correct that. There's a mechanism on there that helps restack those or re-put them back in line before the next group of cartons is placed behind it. So that, again, takes an operator out of the picture where you would normally have to stop. An operator would have to come up there and fix that. This mechanism helps correct that to keep it going in a fully automatic mode.
0: Those are some of the advantages. Are there any other advantages for companies that would be using this kind of technology?
1: So some of it is ergonomics. Again, I mentioned that we lift cases up. In some cases, rotate them over. Um, When you're talking like big cereal cartons or something like that, that can weigh 40 pounds or so. So flipping those over on a repeated basis can be challenging. So it helps out from an ergonomic standpoint since it does that with a machinery piece instead of a person doing
0: it. And you mentioned this was done in conjunction with a customer. Is a lot of innovation driven by customer needs?
1: It is. So from an Ari Jones standpoint, we look at market-driven innovation and we look at customer-driven so we find it really good when we can partner with a customer to do this. It really gets their voice to us and we can get into details on that perspective. So in this case, we knew what kind of floor plan restrictions they had. We knew kind of budget they were looking for. So we were able to develop something that worked in both of those areas.
0: So is that then something that you would be able to replicate in another plant or it would just be something completely individual and tailor-made for another customer?
1: So that's a very good question. So we are fully capable of doing customized solutions, but what we did with this particular one is it was uh, the AML was something we wanted to develop anyway. So we designed it for the customer and then after the fact, we've gone back and make it more of a market-driven solution too. So we're going back and adding some of the features that customer may not have wanted or a different type of floor plan orientation or like I said, some of those additional pieces that may make it more automated.
0: And how easy is it for this equipment to be used? Do the companies have to do a lot of training?
1: There'll be some training for sure, just as far as what types of screens are on our operator interface, you know what to do if some sort of error occurs or fault occurs on how to reset that. So there is some training. The basic premise is you load cases onto a conveyor. Those cases go up and are kind of primed and ready to be stripped off that conveyor the case is oriented correctly, and all the cartons pulled out and automatically put onto the carton magazine. So the training really is how does it operate? How's it supposed to operate and what to do if you happen to have a fault?
0: How has the pandemic affected your ability to work with companies?
1: For us, um, the pandemic, we are crazy busy um, just because so many of our bigger customers are just trying to Get as much production out as they can to the grocery stores or or markets or anything like that. If our customers are having an issue with getting people to come in, whether it's either finding or keeping or retaining skilled labor to run the lines, this helps on reducing the number of people you need.
0: And have you been able to offer customers support throughout the pandemic?
1: We offer the ability for someone to get on a phone, watch video, help the customer troubleshoot. We can still send technicians out, but we try to do some of those first line things that we can do by video or phone. So we have a help desk that helps out with that as well.
0: That is probably something that will continue into the future, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I, I, we, we believe it will. Um, we believe it will. So rather than waiting for someone to jump on a plane and get out there, you can get somebody on the phone pretty quick and see if you can resolve the issue uh, using one of those features rather than having somebody fly out and waiting for that to happen.
0: Now we're talking about processed foods and what the actual definition is and its implications. I guess first it might help to discuss whether it's pronounced processed or processed, but that's one of those words where pronunciation depends on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Anyway, current food classification systems for processed foods lack consistency and consensus, which often leads to confusion and debate even among scientists, a new study in the journal Trends in Food Science and Technology Reports. The study was undertaken at the University of Surrey, which is in Guildford, in the county of Surrey in the UK, and one of those participating was Professor Monique Ratz. Okay, well I guess if we get started by looking at some of the issues in terms of what the issues are surrounding processed food or processed food and what kind of food you considered in the study, because I think with a lot of things like natural ingredients, I think the first thing is to really define what processed food is.
2: Yeah, so that was what we were interested in in the study was the definition. Yeah, we see the term being used a lot. And our research question was, just how has this term been used? Who's used it? So we didn't limit it to any kinds of foods. It was really going out there looking what definitions are being used and why. So we'd be considering all sorts of foods and we didn't presume that any food was good or bad. Yeah we were looking for systems that they were being used to characterize foods and then one question was why were they characterizing the foods? What was the purpose of doing that?
0: Is necessarily all processed food bad?
2: No so what we came across is that the definitions are different and so roughly the systems have been used to answer questions about health and so a number of the systems were designed to categorize foods in order to then study the relationship between the healthfulness or those foods and health outcomes and the different groups that did that did that in slightly different ways but if you go back for example to how the US Department of Agriculture, it uses a definition of processed foods. And it says it's any food that's been subject to procedures to alter food from its natural state. And so that's more or less a food science and technology definition. And it sort of says something about what's happened to the food from the point at which it was a raw ingredient to the point at which it's used for consumption. And so that then reflects the intensity, the duration, and what kinds of steps have been taken. You know What changes have happened? Are they physical, chemical, or biological? So changing the nature of the food. Again, the way you do that can be slightly different. So there are various definitions of that sort. And so again, that's what we were looking for.
0: You mentioned the word processed or the words processed foods and it seems to be something that's in the same region as sugar or seems to have a negative connotation
2: yeah if processing is about changing a food that can be about what ingredients do you bring together to create that food and one of the things you can do is add things like sugar fat and salt and so what we've seen is that sometimes Processed foods or ultra-processed foods is used as a shorthand way of saying you know, these are foods that are high in those nutrients or ingredients. And so then it becomes synonymous. And one of the challenges in communicating about things is that one has to agree what the definitions are. And if there are varying definitions, then yeah, that can lead to confusion in discussions. And so that, again, was one of the reasons we wanted to look. How are people using this concept? Why are they using it? And what might the results be of different uses of the term?
0: And so in dairy, what would qualify as processed?
2: Again, arguably almost every food we eat, you could say, is processed to some extent. It's just the extent to which and way in which is processed. So at the moment, yeah, if you say the raw ingredients with you know dairy products are the milk that comes out of the cow that's you know very far from what it is that most of us will eat so all those steps that you take in order to create whatever the food is be it a milk a yogurt cheese and some of those products have many more steps and also yeah how easy it is to keep whether something has been processed to the extent that it can be kept on the shelf rather than in the fridge so all of those things would dictate the extent to which something is processed Um, and there are some products that are yeah, you know, the main ingredient is milk, but they might have other ingredients for flavor. So again, depending on where they sit in that span, yeah, you, know, you would regard it as more or less processed.
0: Right. And I guess a lot of it is for flavour, but it's also for preservation and shelf life as well. Yeah. yeah. What are the issues when it comes to classifying processed foods? I guess you've covered Some of them already, you know what you've just been saying, but how difficult is it to categorize and to classify all of the different methods of classifying them?
2: Well, what we did was go and look for what were the characteristics of the classification systems. And we basically identified four themes in that. And one was about yeah, the extent to which a food has changed from its natural state. And then another one was something around the nature of the change so what properties have changed, you know, have, have ingredients been added or not, and the place of processing. So where did the processing happen and who did it? And the purpose of processing, You know why was it done? Was it done for um, shelf life purposes to make it more attractive? And those were things that were taken into account in the varying definitions, but some did some of that more than others
0: and what did the study involve how much research did you have to do in order to study this
2: um well we tried to look across the literature so we based it on what's been published about all these systems so we went and looked at all the papers and some of the systems are reported on in a number of different places so again we had to sort of look to sort of see where could all of that happen we did keep it limited to the english language so i think if one were to go and look um, even more broadly we might identify some further things so that it could be interesting to do but we in the end identified eight classification systems in use and those are the ones that we looked at in depth and um, in the publication we describe those in a table um, showing the different characteristics of each of them and they were what i said before the main themes were around extent of change, nature of change of food, place of processing, and purpose of processing, and then yeah we also characterized why was the um, scheme set up, um, what was its purpose, and for the most part, the schemes have been used to look at the relationship between processing level of processing and health um, because that's one of the themes that's come out that if if you look over the years. The way and um, place where our foods are made has changed. Um, if, you know, if we go very far back, we as the consumers of food were responsible for all the you know, the processing, and over time we've handed over that responsibility to others to do on our behalf.
0: So homemade food can be processed as well, and
2: yeah, the steps that we do in the kitchen at home are similar to or you know a variation of the ones that are done in the manufacturing context. So there would be parallels, but there are ones for which you would need some pretty fancy equipment to be able to do them at home. Again, in some cases, yeah, you do have things that mirror what would happen in the industrial context.
0: But I think that the general opinion of consumers would be that homemade food is healthier just because it's made at home.
2: Yeah, but I think that comes back to what does that word health mean? And health means it can be about what's the physical impact on, you know, is it good for me? Does it have the nutrients in it that I need? But health is also about is it safe? And people might think, well, if I do it myself, I know at least where those ingredients have come from, what I've done with them. But yeah, not all of us are as skilled with handling food. So we might be doing things to the food where we you know, don't cook it long enough. We might you know, burn it. And so, yeah, we as consumers, if we're not skilled enough, can be introducing risk as well. Saying it's homemade is perhaps a shorthand way of saying it's something that I know a lot about what's happened um, and I have control perhaps of the ingredients. And that comes back to, I think, with consumers is how much do you really know about the food? And if you start to get worried because of scandals you've heard of, you might think, oh, I need to control that myself. Therefore, preparing things myself would be better. But, yeah, that all comes back to do you know enough about the heritage of all your ingredients and do you trust? And so it's a big issue is around um. Trusting the sources and the producers of our food.
0: And we often hear these days about ultra-processed food. What's the difference between processed and ultra-processed?
2: So ultra-processed, it refers to foods using perhaps ingredients that um, have been taken out of their natural matrix, and that's where these adding things like fat, sugar, and salt to foods. You know, those are ingredients that have been added. In some cases, its purpose is to uh, ensure its shelf life is longer, but it could also be you know, to add flavor and make it what people want to eat. So if you're adding these sort of fractionated ingredients to foods, that's what's become to be termed yeah, ultra processed foods. So it's, again, that more you know, moving away from the original state of foods and doing things to the food that go beyond just taking the natural food matrix and doing things with it to get it into an edible state.
0: You mentioned the aspect of trying to make it more appealing and, and tastier and also shelf life. Is there also another component? Would cost reduction be a component of that as well?
2: That could also be the case. So again, when one is creating foods for sale, one yeah, takes into account how much does it cost for it. And, and, yeah, you have to balance out you know, all the things um, that you want to achieve with a food product. And yeah, cost would be very much one of those. Yeah, if you're using certain ingredients that they could be a lot more expensive. So, yeah, how do you make a food more affordable? It's by using lower cost ingredients.
0: And so as far as your study is concerned, are there any recommendations or any guidelines as to how we can classify and categorize a bit more efficiently?
2: I think the more consistency we would get in in how we use the term, it would be better because I think otherwise, particularly the public is exposed to too wide a range of terms and you know doesn't really know what they mean, and I think the more consistent we are as a community, the easier it is for all of us to navigate and understand what is meant by the terms that we come across, and the term at the moment is used in dietary guidance, sometimes called dietary guidelines, these sort of shorthand ways we have of trying to explain to people what it means for a food to be healthy or even broader than healthy, you know, sustainable, a good food. And so if you're using in your explanation of those foods, the term process, it's really important to have a good, solid definition. And what we've seen is also perhaps in using the criteria that have been set out in some of these schemes, it isn't always that easy to apply them because the definitions aren't always very clear. So if we can come up with transparent ways of working out whether something is or isn't, whatever um, each of the items is that's part of the system, that, again, would be easier. And we have some techniques that can probably help us with that. So creating transparent evidence-based classification systems. And it's not saying that the ones that exist aren't that. But I think, again, the fact that at the moment we have different ones suggests it is because they each use slightly different sets of criteria with, in some cases, a little bit different definitions.
0: And I think that in the terms that we're talking about here, I think that consumers would find it, if you asked 100 consumers to define processed, you would probably get quite different answers.
2: Yeah, but what we've seen is if you ask experts, it's the same thing. So I think the more we can move everybody to having a good understanding of each other's definitions, the better it would be. And where those definitions are being used as part of a communication system that we are able to explain them very well if people wanted to delve into and understand because if you have a classification system everybody should be able to apply it and so they have to be such that that's easy to do and also fit for purpose if you're going to use a classification system yeah they have to fit into the the reasons why you're using them and ensure that they're fit for the purpose that you've selected to use them and yeah particularly where we're using them as part of your dietary guidance we want that to be evidence-based so again that you know that you've come to a tool that is fit for purpose.
0: And, and I suppose in the same way that we've had issues in terms of how you label products and how you work out the nutritional value like we have the traffic light system and how do you get to a position where there's some kind of consensus that everybody can agree to that
2: Well, that is an involved process where you have to really involve all the stakeholders. So that would be industry, but that would also be government bodies who are responsible for setting policy and introducing things like legislation and ensuring that that's adhered to. But it would also be society at large, civil society. So that would be consumers or those groups representing consumers need to be part of that discussion and the scientific community, and then I'm not just saying, you know, just nutritionists or food technologists, it would also be social scientists who understand how consumers think about things, and that needs to be taken into account when agreeing, you know, what terminology to use, because otherwise it could have unintended consequences if you use terms that would in the end not work and are not aligned with how people think about these things.
0: So quite the undertaking to get all of that together.
2: Yeah, but I think yeah we more and more have systems of doing that. Um, and I think it is about that you can have those discussions just in one of those communities. So it really needs to be something where everybody comes together. And I think governments are well placed to guide that process because they are elected by us to do that job of establishing what would be the ways to do things in society.
0: What would be the next steps for the group that you're working in?
2: Well, this work is part of Christina Sadler's PhD, so she is still doing more work on this with us. So at the moment, she is conducting um, some research on how stakeholders also think about this. Also looking at how in the media, specifically in the social media concept of processed foods is used and so i think that will grow the amount of knowledge we have about what does this term mean and yeah you know, what are the consequences of it being used in different ways
0: very interesting area though there's lots of scope for more study and for more development of it that's for sure
2: yeah looking and considering yeah why it's important and how it relates to other concepts, and we sort of talked a little bit about that in the paper. you know there are terms like convenience foods where you know that's again another shorthand way of saying you know foods when you purchase them, you can eat them straight away and there's a relationship you know with processing to do with that concept and yeah again, where we talk about foods, it's important again to have a good understanding of what those terms mean and when we should use which term and why.
0: Now it's to a very interesting company, Bon Apisweet, a gelato producer in the US. The company just won the Empower project, which was created by a consortium of 11 firms with the intention of amplifying the voices of black owned businesses in the consumer packaged goods space in the US. Now, there's the occasional homeschooling noise on both sides of the interview in this one, but of course, that's now par for the course everywhere. To tell us about the award and the company is its CEO, Teresa Black. I guess if we could start by, if you tell me a little about your company and the products that you have?
3: So I founded this company after I deployed for a little over a year, right before my daughter turned two. I gave her a birthday party right before the night before I I left and I made her an ice cream cookie cake. And then the very next morning I said goodbye and my deployment was really tough for me. I I cried like every day and um, I knew I could never deploy again. And so I decided to start my own business and that was going to be my way to get out of the military. But I had to figure out exactly how to, like, what to do. And so I decided to start this gelato company because while I was deployed, like, my daughter had never had ice cream before except for that one time on her birthday. Um, But while I was deployed, my cousin started giving her ice cream all the time. And so I knew I couldn't just come home and say, all right, this is done. So the compromise was that I was going to make an ice cream for her that was better for her. So this company was born. I take out all the cane sugar and sweeten using only a combination of fruit-based sweeteners. And the idea is that it's a thing that you can be happy to give your kids, like a dessert that you can be happy to give your kids, but that they'll actually love and ask for more. That was the idea behind the company.
0: And what kind of flavors do you have?
3: So we have like a honey butter pecan. We have banana pudding, chocolate chip cookies and cream, s'mores where we actually roast the s'mores. So I actually roast the marshmallows to make sure that it's like you get that actual like s'mores taste. I have peach cobbler, pistachio swirl, What I've essentially done is I've taken all the flavors that people normally love and then just put a little twist on them to make it like a little bit more unique to us. And that way people are getting like the flavors that they're used to, but also getting like a little extra. So that's what I try to do with it. And then also, like, obviously, I used to bake a lot. So a lot of my flavors are influenced by that. Um, That's where you get the peach cobbler. And I used to have uh, blueberry pie, like stuff like that, those flavors.
0: Did you have any experience in this before you decided you were going to set up your own company?
3: I did not, actually. The only thing I've ever done. So when I was stationed in Japan, I lived in Japan. And I used to bake cheesecakes for the people that worked for me. And then from there, they started sharing my cheesecakes. And then, so I'm on the aircraft carrier. So there's 5,000 people on this ship. And so once people started tasting the cheesecake, they started like, oh, man, I need you to make me one. So like, I had like my own little cheesecake business going on. Um, while I was stationed in Japan but when I left Japan I came back and went to law school so I didn't have time to I couldn't like continue that I wanted to but I couldn't continue that obviously because of time crunch
0: and I guess you have a line of dairy and dairy-free gelatos
3: we have a line of oat milk gelatos and those are all dairy free and then we have a line of uh, regular and that's primarily because when you make gelato usually the dairy-free version of gelato is a sorbet and so at the beginning, when I first opened my shop, we had gelato and we had sorbet. And then people were just like, well, I can't eat dairy, but I want, I want gelato. I don't want sorbet. And I tried to just figure out how to like, help those people. And so you have the regular options like almond milk or soy milk. So my daughter is allergic to soy. So I'm really sensitive to certain types of allergies. And like, a lot of kids suffer from peanut allergies as well. So I wanted an ice cream that little kids could eat, right? So that's why I chose not to do the, the nuts. I didn't do almonds and I didn't do soy. So I chose the oat milk because one, the flavor is very close to regular milk, but also there's not as many allergies to oats as there are to nuts and soy. So my oat milk flavor is that right now I have butter pecan, peach cobbler, chocolate espresso, and then a fior de latte, which is like vanilla.
0: So is this a physical store that you have or is it where you sell it in pints in supermarkets and online, et cetera?
3: Yep. So right now we are actually at a grocery store in D.C. We sell it e-commerce through e-commerce. So on our website, people can order pints from our website. And then we're soon going to have, by the end of this month, we're going to have virtual shelves. And so what these virtual shelves allow us to do is they allow us to sell out of cloud kitchens in major cities across the country. And people can order our products off of Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, Postmates, like all of those platforms um, in their city if we have a shelf there.
0: In terms of setting all of this up, because when you have the idea, that's one thing, but then there's a gazillion things that you've got to do after that because you've got the product concept, you've got to make sure that they work, you've got to be able to produce them at scale, there's marketing, packaging. How, how did you pull all of that together?
3: <laughs> One step at a time, honestly. So like the licensing and like getting all that stuff, the insurance and stuff like that. I did that before I got back from deployment. So I read a lot. Like I read a lot of stuff about entrepreneurship. And so I knew a lot of stuff I had to get done before I got home. And so I registered our company before I got home. I got our bank account set up, all that basic stuff, right? But then when it came to launching, honestly, what I heard a lot before I launched was that a lot of entrepreneurs, they always want to get everything perfect before they start up. And that always makes it take longer and longer and longer. But the reality is that the best way to understand your customer and also to get things like to perfect your product, especially food, is to start selling it and let people tell you. And so honestly, I got home in May and I was selling it at a farmer's market by July. And so I honestly never even made a lot before that. <laughs> and so it was a quick, it was a quick turnaround and a quick learning curve. But I mean, the reality is that I just did it as I went. So I didn't worry about marketing as so much at the beginning. So like I've just gradually gotten larger and larger and like made more effort to market. But yeah, I mean, most of our stuff is usually by word of mouth, honestly.
0: You mentioned like starting out and just doing it by testing it out and taking it, waiting for people's comments. What were the comments like?
3: um it just depended so our original recipe was a lot different than the one that we have right now i remember one time someone said oh well it has it's like a little bit of aftertaste and i was like oh i know what that is so i went back and changed it And I, because i used to give out samples this is before covid right when you could give out food samples um so we had like i had like a little display case um that had our gelato in it at, at summer's market and so we could give people samples and they would say oh i don't like this flavor because of that i don't like that flavor because of that and so i would say okay And I would just go back and change it, make a little tweak, and then that would be it. So like chocolate espresso. Originally, um, the flavor name was Woke. And so originally, that was like a vanilla base with chocolate chips. I would melt the chocolate, and I would put bits of espresso beans inside the chocolate, and then make it into chocolate chips, and then sprinkle that throughout the gelato. And so I had that version of it originally. Then I made a flavor called We Woke, which was a very light chocolate. It's a mocha. It's essentially mocha, a chocolate espresso. Um, but it's actually the flavor of the gelato itself is chocolate with the espresso beans broken up into it. And so I put them both out for customers to taste and they loved, I mean, they liked both of them, but they loved the chocolate espresso with the actual, like the, the mocha flavor. And so I got rid of the other one. So like, that's how, <laughs> that's how I just, if I had flavors that were similar, I put them head to head and then let people go. At the beginning, I didn't have a milk, cho- I didn't have a chocolate flavor and people kept asking for it. And so I got it. You know what I mean, so like same thing with like the oat milk, when people asked for things, I just went back and did it.
0: Were some of them easier than others to come up with?
3: For me, it's all, they're all not easy because it's all experimentation and you have to experiment to get the right flavor. So I think for me, that's the fun of it. I love inventing new things. I love figuring out new combinations and I love seeing people's faces when they first try them. Like banana pudding was something that like literally I went to the store one day and I wanted banana pudding and the only container they had was a huge container and Isabella can't eat banana pudding. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a gelato that's banana pudding flavor. And if I love it, customers are going to love it usually. I've never had something that I loved and customers didn't like. Banana pudding was my favorite flavor. It literally became the favorite flavor at the store.
0: It's a good thing that you didn't experiment with this in the UK because, you know, you're saying people telling you what they thought of it in the UK, they would, if they hated it, they'd say, no, I really like that. And then you just wouldn't buy it again. People here are like, they try and be too polite, but it's nice when you get that positive feedback and negative feedback because it helps you shape the future of the products, I guess.
3: Yeah, and that's why, so honestly, you get the same thing here. But when you can give out samples, the best part about it is that you know which flavors they don't like because obviously, if they liked it, they wouldn't ask for another taste. And so I would, I would just ask, like, hey, what didn't you like about that one? And they was like, oh no, I loved it. I was just like, okay, but for real, like you're not gonna hurt my feelings. I really wanna make my gelato like the best that it can be. So I, I had to like coerce people into telling me the truth sometimes because a lot of times, like you said, people don't wanna hurt anyone's feelings. But if you let them know like, hey, my feelings will not be hurt, I promise you. You're actually gonna help me in the long run. And they're more willing to be honest. But honestly, when you have kids, kids are the way to really do it. So originally my sorbets, they all had vegetables in them. You couldn't taste the vegetables or anything like that, but they all had vegetables. And so when the kids tried them, honestly the kids usually love the ones with vegetables they love them and they would always get more that's how i knew i had a good recipe but the problem is that when you tell people that they have vegetables in them and you're eating ice cream most people are just like i don't want to try it because of that i stopped putting vegetables in so it's just one of those things since ice cream is a thing that a lot of kids eat they'll tell you if they like it or don't like it it's the adults that you have to like for
0: you've got some funding what's the empower project
3: so the Empire Project is actually, so it's, it's services as opposed to cash, but it's like all these services that any company needs to grow. The Empire Project has given me things that I needed as a company, but that I couldn't afford. So I just went without services like marketing and branding and packaging stuff like that like things they help you with the things that you need as a company but that only larger companies can afford to have i don't want to float any anymore i want to like i want to thrive right i don't want to just be here and and be gradually growing i want to be able to skyrocket and i believe the services that are being offered to me by the empowered project they're going to help me do that
0: now is this something that you had to enter or did somebody enter on your behalf and you didn't know anything about it No, no. So
3: it's a pitch competition. So we have a group of veteran CEOs in DC. We have a little Facebook group. I think that they told me about it. And then I applied. And then the Empower Project narrowed down the number. And then we all pitched live on um, New Hope's website. And then uh, they had the judges vote. And then they let the crowd have a voice as well. And then I was selected. This is such a huge opportunity. I will now be on the same level playing field as my competitors that have money and have funding and have resources. And so it's hard to explain what it's like to be a person with nothing, no resources. And then all of a sudden, like you have them, you can actually do the thing that you wanted to do before. Before it was just a dream. And now it can actually be a reality.
0: What does it mean to get all of that in terms of how you can grow now? I mean, it's huge. I've talked to my customers.
3: I know what they're saying that they want but how do you execute a proper branding strategy or a marketing strategy? You don't know how to execute it the right way. And now you have experts that do know how to execute the right way. All of your ideas that were good before, now you can actually execute them. And the reality is right now I'm selling food. So when you go into the grocery store, you can tell the difference between the the company that knows what they're doing and the the company that doesn't know what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be the company that didn't know what they're doing. And now I'm not going to be. So some of the services like New Hope giving us a table at Expo East. Expo East is something that Small companies like mine can't usually afford to attend, but it's a place that is monumental because you get to speak with all, the, all these grocery store buyers and they get to sample your products and stuff like that. And so an opportunity like that, the repercussions of having that opportunity are hard to explain. As opposed to having to go individually to one store at a time, now you get a chance to be introduced to all of these stores at the same time. And it's
0: huge. How do you see the next year panning out while you have this opportunity So
3: next step, the very next step is going to be
0: um, branding. So we're going to start doing our
3: branding plan. And then um, from there, everything else will follow. I'm doing a round of fundraising starting up pretty soon. It's just different levels of growth, but like it's all about to start happening right now. So a year from now, I will most likely be in, uh, I can't tell you which one, but there's a handful of major grocery stores that are asking for samples right now but it usually takes about a year before you um, actually get into stores um, just because of their process. There are about three major grocery stores that are asking for us right now so hopefully we'll be in them by next spring. My website was just redone but there's some other changes that have to be added to it like I need to upgrade a couple of things. This project will help me with that. The packaging, design, they're all going to help monumentally and by next year we'll be in the big leagues.
0: And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX.
4: It's been a relatively quiet week for butter on the futures uh, side this week, price-wise. Prices have been pretty flat all week. Uh, Skimmel powder, however, has uh, managed to continue to to strengthen, which is good for the overall price of milk at at farmgate level and as a result getting quite a bit of interaction from farmers uh, looking to hedge milk prices from these levels. Quarter two butter down a bit, probably down around 35 40 euros to the 41 35 level. Quarter two was more or less the same level as last week around 42 10 level. Quarter four uh, around the 42 30 level this week unchanged. And uh, quarter one unchanged also around the 4100 euros a ton level. Skim milk powder, as I said, however, has continued to strengthen. We're up around 40 euros to the 2560 level in quarter two skim, up around 40 euros also to 2580 level in quarter three skim, and quarter four is up around 40 euros on the week to 2590 level. Quarter one a good bit stronger on last week, up to around a 25.75 level from around the 2,500 level last week. Way has continued to remain relatively stable around the 1,000 euros a tonne level.
0: Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. Stone X, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And so that's it for another podcast. Until next week, of course, when we will be talking about, among other things, chia, molecular farming and ice cream, and no doubt the weather, the pandemic, and anything else that may have happened over the past week. As of Friday here in Scotland, we're finally free to move about the country, so I'm sure I will try and find a walk a long way from home. I guess the only issue now is that for the past 14 months, the most I've driven is about 25 minutes, so anything longer than that and I'll probably need a nap and be too exhausted to walk. One thing I won't be doing is picking a popular tourist spot as my guess is it will be teeming with people. So wherever in the world you may be, please take care, stay safe and, as always, thanks for listening.